There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cressingham Gardens has been approved for partial demolition. A housing historian picked to lead the London Plunging School of EU Architecture. Applications send UK architect numbers into a tailspin. Thomas Heatherwick's new personal Sadiq assistant. Sadiq Khan set for new plans for the New York Skyline team chosen for the counter-pilot. Now Hetty, what's this all about? 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 That's a question that doesn't get asked nearly enough in the context of London's architecture and urban landscape. There's often so much more going on behind the scenes of regeneration projects and new architectural commissions than meets the eye. Certainly there's far more going on than ever gets aired in the mainstream media. And that's frustrating, because whether you're talking about climate change, equity, the housing crisis, gender heritage, economics, urban issues are indelibly at the heart of all major social and political debates. So at the start of this year, we launched this show, The Lundown, a free 30-minute news digest analysing the big issues breaking in London's architecture and built environment worlds every single week. Each Thursday morning, we invite a guest to join us to decode and explain what's really going on behind the headlines of the architecture and built environment press. I think it's a brilliant show. It's fast, it's sharp, it's unpretentious, it doesn't get too lost in academia, but neither does it get bogged down in professional jargon. It's the kind of show which I wish had been around when I was a student or cutting my teeth as an assistant in London's architecture scene over a decade ago. But what do you think? At Open City, we only want to create projects that are useful and timely to the communities that we serve. So when you have 60 seconds spare today, please go over to open-city.org.uk slash London and fill in the short listener survey that's there. That'll help us to make the London more helpful to you and your peers. So last week we broadcast the 25th episode of The Lundown. So today, to mark that milestone, we're going to look back at a few of the stories we've covered over the months and the brilliant guests who've helped us to get under the skin of those stories and answer the perennial question of what's this all about. We're going to hear from Owen Hathley of Tribune magazine, John Elledge of The New Statesman and The Big Issue, Hetty O'Brien of The Guardian, the architect Ewa Effiam, Kath Slesser from the 20th Century Society, AJ's Ella Jassel and others too. I'm Finn Harper. Welcome to the London. Let's start in March, when the Chancellor unveiled a new budget, and John Elledge joined Merlin Fulcher on the London to talk through what it would mean for housing in London. We want to look at housing, which is an area with a massive impact on the built environment, particularly in London, and something we love discussing on this show. 
While there's no new spending on much needed public housing in the budget, the Chancellor has extended the stamp duty holiday to June. It was introduced at the start of the crisis and had been due to terminate this month. The holiday cut the rate of stamp duty, it's effectively a sales tax on homes, down to zero for all properties £500,000 or under. And at the time it was hailed as a kind of gift to wannabe homeowners. But it actually drove up the average home price by 8.5%. Therefore it's something that really helped sellers far more than buyers. Also in the budget, the Chancellor has unwrapped a new 95% mortgage offer for homes worth up to £600,000. This is something that's open to both first-time buyers and those already on the so-called ladder. It effectively resurrects an earlier shelved help-to-buy mortgage guarantee scheme, which according to Shelter resulted in a 1.4% house price increase. So what's this all about? Is this effectively a budget for house price increases? I mean, to me, it looks, that's exactly what it looks like. And I don't, I don't even think there's any, there's not really any pretense about that. I mean, a group of people I don't believe came up anywhere in the Chancellor's uh, statement today was, was renters. Um, when, when this government is talking about helping uh, generation rent, they always frame it entirely in terms of like helping people to get on the ladder. Those 5% mortgages are kind of meant to help out with that. But that's actually, that's still quite a small group. The number of people who can afford 5% of our ridiculously exorbitant house, house prices is, is still going to be a, a, a small number compared to the number of people who would like to be able to do that. So, so my reading of all these policies was basically about keeping the punch ball going round. Um, because if we do get to a point where, where that stops and the housing and the house prices crash, um, that may, in, in the long term, that's probably going to be quite a good thing. But in the short term, that's going to do all sorts of terrible things to the economy uh, with all sorts of unpredictable effects. And if you're a Chancellor of the Exchequer, you probably don't want that happening. You'll watch, do you? Um, I mean, one of the things we really love on the show is to talk about the kind of deep politics which shapes architecture in the built environment. And so an, an obvious question is, is a budget policy like this, one which drives up house prices, is that a deeply political policy or is this actually something that we could possibly imagine some of the other political parties might have done something a bit similar if they were in this situation i mean i'm going getting uh, old and cynical which is a change from my my previous incarnation as relatively young and cynical um but i i can't imagine uh i mean if just thinking back to when labor in office they they also wanted house prices to go up pretty much continuously probably still just about a majority of people in this country do kind of want house prices to rise. It's just that we do have this growing group of people who who are kind of shut out of that. And with the decline of social housing and so on, we, we don't, who don't really have any other options to get secure housing. So, so sometimes in my dreams, I consider the 400 billion or so that's been spent in response to this crisis so far and, and question whether or not it would be an awful lot less if we actually had proper, healthy... Uh, sustainable housing that people could live in and self-isolating in a much more sensible way. So it does seem rather like we've, we've probably thrown money at the wrong side of the problem. I mean, perversely, a house price crash could make the housing crisis in the long term harder to solve, right? Because if, like, if prices fall, then the <laughs> our, our sort of, um, mass house building companies stop building until they rise again because of the nonsense of the, the British land market. Um, so I kind of think there is an argument that to get out of this crisis, we probably need them to, at the very least, stay stable while we put some other measures in place. 
I think the problem is we've had a run of governments that have shown very little interest in putting those other measures in. They kind of just think that if we if prices keep rising, then then eventually the market will resolve all ills. And it's become abundantly clear to me, at least, that that's that's not going to happen. Sticking with housing, in spring, the London plan was finally published after extensive delays. Hetty O'Brien from The Guardian joined Merlin Fulcher on The London to discuss what's in the plan and what it means for Londoners. It's all to do with The London Plan, which has been finally been published and will come into force, shaping policy for all sorts of development, but especially housing across the capital. It's effectively a master development plan for London, a sort of high-level document covering everything from jobs to homes to transport and the environment. But this particular version, drawn up by Sadiq Khan, who was elected mayor in 2016, has a very special story. And that is because despite being originally published in draft form more than four years ago, it has only just been formally adopted. This is because the government has spent years criticising the mayor's proposed London plan and demanding changes before it could be formally published. In effect, this stopped London's elected leader from being able to create development policies for much of his initial term in office, something which Khan says has done real harm to confidence in key industries and among Londoners, including the work to build more homes. Key criticism focused on the mayor's desire to create more new homes in outer London suburban settlements, while at the same time protecting the overall amount of industrial employment space within inner London. So policies like this would have meant that transforming an industrial area into entirely luxury housing, like for example what happened in Nine Elms, would have been much harder to achieve. And it would have also meant that sleepy suburban areas with good transport links may have also seen some beefier development. The criticism and the firm instruction to change course forced the mayor to scale back his ambitions from creating 64,500 new homes a year to delivering just 52,000 a year, just to get the government to allow the plan to be published. Now, Hetty, what's this all about? Should we, be, should we be surprised it's taken this long for the London plan to be published? Or is this actually a bigger reflection of, sadly, how weak City Hall powers really are? I mean, I think it's a story that reflects so many more things than just the individual story itself. And I think the clue is really in the name. The Tories have a very different plan for the capital. Um, and I was reminded this morning when I was thinking about this story, about the historian David Edgerton, who says, I think he describes London as something like a cosmopolitan service enclave in a fallen industrial nation. And I think it really reflects the kind of how this, how the Tories view this economically. But also, I think um, the kind of sense of the, the fact that City Hall doesn't seem to have the same powers or it feels like its powers have been very much enfeebled. And this has its, you know, it's completely its own history as well. Um, we all know what happened with Thatcher when she um, won power and set her sights on the GLC. And she really saw the potential of urban councils to grow into power bases that could thwart the supremacy of Westminster. And so really it became a kind of battle between the national government and local government and in particular the GLC. I think her cabinet minister, Norman Tebbit, said something like um, the GLC was typical of a kind of modern divisive form of socialism that must be defeated. And that's quite literally what happened. Um, I think when, when it was abolished, he boasted that it was it marked the defeat of socialism. And obviously Sadiq Khan's plan was hardly socialist to begin with. 
I mean, it didn't, I don't think in its initial um, iteration really even live up to the kind of housing need that London has at the moment. But in this watered down version, it feels like a real reflection of um, diverging political priorities and different views of what the city should be for and who the city should serve, really. Fantastic. I think you're, you're really diving into the deep politics which shapes architecture in our built environment. And that is exactly what we love to discuss on The London. But I mean, is it fair to say that it's not just deep medley- politics, but also big projects that get discussed on The London? For example, in May, when Owen Hathaway joined Zoe Cave to talk about Peabody and Lend-Lease's redevelopment of Thamesmead, an estate in South East London, and the architectural teams who won that commission. Our next item was an exclusive scoop in the AJ. It's all about the big reveal of the winning team in the competition held by developers Peabody and Lendlease to select a visionary and strategic master planner for their £8 billion Thamesmead waterfront development. The team chosen for the enormous 100 hectare project will be led by Prior and Partners and features London Alison Brooks Architects, JA Projects set up by Jaden Ali and Turner Works, alongside Dutch Practices West 8 and Mark Kohler Architects. The £8 billion Thamesmead waterfront project will be the largest in Peabody's history. The competition encouraged collaborations with smaller, diverse practices and those with local knowledge. There are a lot of young practices and smaller firms on the winning Thamesmead waterfront team. What does it say about the fact that these sorts of people are involved in the winning bid? Peabody tends to take architecture seriously, you know, which hasn't always been the case in Thamesmead since you know since the GLC was abolished um if you look at the kind of replacement housing that was built at Tavy Bridge when that part was demolished or if you look at the absolutely dreadful developers housing and retail parks that have been built in the original kind of open spaces of the plan in the 90s and 2000s you know the list of architects that you've read out is obviously going to be vastly better than that i suppose I would be interested to see if any of them had much engagement with Tennismead as a particular genius loci. You know, with it's it's a it's a very, very distinct place, you know, of kind of concrete and marshes and lakes. Um it has a kind of visual haptic quality which is very different from a lot of the rest of London. Tebsmead it was kind of uh, planned in the mid sixties by London County Council and taken over by the new Greater London Council and was intended to be a kind of um, self-contained new town within within Greater London. It was built on MOD land, um, partly on land which was used by travellers. It still has a very large traveller community. I mean, one of the real pleasures of Thamesmead actually is wandering around concrete ho- concrete walkways that have horses on them. You know, it's a it's 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 a good thing rather than the bad thing. Um, but I think that that um, that original idea, I suppose, kind of came sort of started at a moment of kind of great optimism and was executed sort of gradually more and more cheaply as time went on. But it was originally planned to be about 70% socially rented and the other kind of 30% as, um, you know, as, as just private housing. So I guess a kind of version of the social mix that people are into nowadays, but very, very different sort, you know, 70, 30 um, socially rented um, versus 30% private is the kind of thing we could only wish for from um, the Alliance of Peabody and Lendlease. Um, I found it very interesting that you referred to Peabody there as developer. 
<laughs> which um, you know the, the, that's the kind of realization that that's what Peabody is now as a developer. According to the press release, at the centre of the team's approach is the idea that communities evolve from existing places and relationships, and at the heart of their philosophy is the need to understand, build on, and grow the social capital that already exists at Thamesmead. Do you think this approach to co-design could create something unique that is both new and of Thamesmead at the same time? I mean, every architect, you know, will talk about the importance of community in their in their statement. Um, you know, it's the law. Um, I think it is literally the law. In fact, um, that, that, that that community engagement has to be kind of factored in some way. Um, but one of the interesting things about Thamesmead, if you're interested in kind of community engagement and what that can actually mean in architecture, is on the one hand the enormous kind of um, amount of kind of community politics and engagement that's happened in the place over the years, which Valerie Wigfall writes about in her social history of Thamesmead, but also in what people did to the original buildings. Um, it's a really odd place to kind of walk around and the, the stuff that stayed council or rather stayed social because it's been out of the hands of the council for a long time, um, you know, tends to have less window. They've kind of, this kind of cheap PVC windows have been put in and they actually block out a lot of the light. Whereas the stuff that's been right to bite, people have generally kept the wider kind of wooden framed windows with more glass but have treated those wooden frames to make them look more Tudor. And so it's this weird thing that it's the only place I can think of in London where the right to buy flats on a modernist block look better than the kind of stuff that's remained social. And that kind of sense that people have over the years customised Thamesmead is actually a positive thing. I think it was something that huge. It can't all look like it's, you know, hewn from one material. And, um, and, you know, it would be interesting to see if some of that ethos, I guess, could be continued. But my main thing with it really is just looking at this huge site in a city that desperately lacks social housing and thinking, like, why are we building more riverside condos? I mean, you know, already some of the new housing in Thamesmead has been, has been found for sale in Hong Kong. Like, you know, the, the, why would you want to kind of build like a kind of another VNEB in Thamesmead? Why not use this as actually the showcase for what the mayor, you know, apparently wants to do, which is, you know, build social housing en masse again? Um, it just looks like these kind of old ideas just playing themselves out again and again and again. It's not just housing that gets covered on the show, but also cultural buildings, public spaces and infrastructure, everything that goes into the urban landscape of London. For example, in February, Catherine Slasser, now the 20th Century Society's president, joined Merlin Fulcher to talk about MVRDV's remarkable and quite bizarre proposal for a giant mound at Marble Arch. And this is for a huge new 25 metre high mound for Oxford uh, Street at the end, Marble Arch actually, and it's designed by MVRDV. Cathy, what's this all about? Well, people do like going up things. They like going up towers, viewing platforms, wheels, hills. And this is basically an artificial hill that you can go up and sniff the air on a viewing platform. Uh, I think they can take 25 people at a time. Basically, you admire Oxford Street and come down again uh, whilst paying what's called this nominal sum for the privilege. So its architects uh, claim that it's a comment on the urban layout of Marble Arch. They look at the site's history. And by looking at the past, we look to the future, which is very profound. 
and we enlarged the park and lifted the corner. But, I mean, I kind of have to say, why would you do this? I mean, um, Marble Arch is a hellhole of traffic views, which, at the best of times, it's basically just a giant roundabout. Perhaps it's a bit less, you know, crowded these days because of COVID. But why would you make it into a hill, which is apparently modelled on Glastonbury Tor, the model of Glastonbury Tor, which featured the opening ceremony at the London Olympics? And as a Scot, I'm always puzzled by this English obsession of Glastonbury Tor. And speaking of the history of Marble Arch, um, it was famously the site of the execution gallows at Tyburn, where people were regularly hung uh, in lavish, drunken public spectacles, and from which I discovered today we get the word hangover. So I think MVRDV have missed a trick there. Absolutely. It does seem like they're certainly sort of tapping into the, the historical context of it being a site of spectacle. Uh, but who is MVRDV? It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? I mean, a lot of people might not have heard of them, but who are? why are they so important? Well, MVRDV are a Dutch practice. They were founded by Winnie Mass, uh, Jacob van Rijs and Natalie de Vries. So you get the kind of alphabet soup, you know, from the... Then their names become a kind of alphabet soup moniker. And they are one of what we call in the trade super Dutch practices who became well known uh, doing offbeat, quirky, slightly provocative projects during the noughties when there was lots of money around for that kind of thing. But again, they've become more mainstream over the years. And I don't see the point of this man, to be honest, because it's going to be temporary and it'll be raised at the end of six months. I mean, I think it would be far better to figure out a permanent solution to the problems of Marble Arch rather than relying on this unsatisfactory temporary tour. Yeah, certainly I hear you on that. Marble Arch um, is an extraordinary space and I think the only time I've really, really, really enjoyed being there uh, was when it was momentarily turned over as an XR protest camp and there were no cars at all and it was a very kind of festival atmosphere. But certainly in, in any kind of current situation, it's very difficult to, to cross uh, it's terrifying to try and find the subway uh, that connects it all together. There's some very dubious uh, public art on display in there. Just this idea of getting cultural events taking place outdoors, I think certainly that's going to be uh, very popular this summer. I think anything taking place in the open air will be mobbed because people are going slightly crazy with lockdown. And honestly, I'd go to the opening of an envelope for a chance to sit in a park with some sun, a tin gin and some state sanctioned company. OK, Cathy, I'll be there with you. That sounds absolutely fantastic. <laughs> At the other end of Oxford Street is, of course, Oxford Circus, a hugely contested crossroads in central London. In June, the Financial Times' Edwin Heathcote, who's their architecture critic, joined the London to talk through a major proposal to pedestrianise two sides of the circus, but keep traffic roaring through the middle. So, Eddie, what do you think about this announcement? Oxford Circus, pre-pandemic, it was a nightmare to negotiate on foot, whether in vehicles such as taxi, bus or bicycle, it was all pretty difficult. Uh, the area has been the focus of various grand visions for its improvement spanning back decades. The current brief envisages two plazas uh, closed to vehicles on either side of the junction, a limited flow of traffic going north to south along Regent Street. Um, why is it that Oxford Circus has proved such a challenge for so many mayors and politicians uh, to resolve? And what really needs to happen here in architectural and traffic planning terms to make this new space a success? Well, I think it's an absolutely perennial but kind of fascinating problem because, you know, as Londoners, we all say that we'll try and avoid Oxford Circus because it's a kind of nightmare of tourists and mass shoppers and commuters. And there's a kind of 
snobbism, I think, towards uh, Oxford Circus, which is extremely unhelpful because it kind of um, allows us to withdraw from the question. You know, it allows us to say, oh, Oxford Circus, but well, we're not going there anyway, so in a way we don't have to worry about it. And that's part of the problem is that lack of engagement has meant that all the plans have been kind of meh. But actually, you know, you can't avoid it. Oxford Circus absolutely is one of those hubs if you're going to the BBC or the Photographer's Gallery or the ROBA. Or... So it is a kind of critical uh, hub. And I'm going to use that as an opportunity not to address your question directly, but to talk about the circus, which is, I think, a really interesting and, and very British kind of affair. There might be some successful circuses in Cheltenham or Bath, but basically it's a kind of lost archetype. And there's something kind of very sad in the name of a circus. You know, I think of sad, shabby donkeys and elephants and uh, and, 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 and a kind of clowns and, you know, cholerophobia and, and, you know, all the kind of detritus of the circus when I think of Piccadilly Circus or Oxford Circus. And I think, you know, there's something interesting about that these places, Piccadilly Circus, Cambridge Circus, particularly Oxford Circus, are being absolutely in the centre of the city and being completely neglected in a way. Uh, and it's a very British condition. You know, it's a, it's a very British archetype of public space to have a public space with no public space in it, just traffic running through it. Um, and, and I think there's something kind of intriguing about that. And this plan is, is exactly bang in the, in the middle of the problem. It's going to be a new public space with traffic running through the middle of it which is not a public space, you know, and so the whole, in a way, the whole thing kind of stems from a misapprehension or a misunderstanding of what public space is. Having said that, I suppose any attention to Oxford Circus is better than none. Absolutely. Um, I mean, well, look, Westminster City Council's opposition Labour group has already released a statement criticising the plans. Uh, they claim it could lead to more vehicles being diverted to residential streets to the north and south of Oxford Circus. Um, they also noted that the proposed rerouting of bus surfaces simply threatens to displace air pollution and congestion into neighbouring areas rather than actually tackling some of these issues uh, head, head, head on. Now, obviously, in London, you know, we've had some high profile street upgrades, like one example is um dixon jones's exhibition road in south kensington um but you know sometimes you, you can wander down these places and you can talk to people and you can say well um you know sometimes it's been seen to not really do that much to stop the kind of aggressive nature of some uh, local traffic like particularly taxi drivers which which still just go along exhibition road like nothing's changed at all um you know despite the millions <laughs> being spent to try and make it into a public space it's still got traffic going through it um you know, how do we how do we move beyond projects like these, like this one in Oxford Circus, simply just being a kind of negotiating and rerouting of an unstoppable volume of traffic, you know, which London's always going to have, uh, and instead, like, draw on some either, like, design or some kind of political power to instead be drastically reducing the number of vehicles on, on the road to really create these spaces? Shared space is a nice idea, but it only works if pedestrians actually have priority. Um, and that's not going to happen in Oxford Circus because the, the, the bus and the taxi traffic is just too heavy. So <clears throat> I I don't know, and I, and I, and it's very difficult to see a it's very difficult to see a future. You know, the, the the kind of consensus I think has been is that Oxford Street is a kind of sewer uh, along which we get rid of all the polluting uh, bus and taxi traffic, which is inevitable in the centre of the city. Um, but I think, you know, with the decline of the department stores, it seems an incredible opportunity to reinvent the whole area. Why can't those department stores be reinvented as, say, cultural spaces? 
you know, I mean, they're, they're absolutely perfect for, say, immersive theatre, for workshops, for, you know, galleries. I mean, they've got deep floor plates. They, uh, you know, galleries, those kind of, you know, theatrical uh, places, um, venues, concerts. They don't need... Uh, they don't need natural lights and the deep floor plates are not a problem. They're already kind of geared up for public access. They're accessible with lifts and, and so on. They're right on the street. It seems to me that, that there's a trick being missed here. Rather than building new cultural institutions, which is still going on all over the place, we should be re-evaluating department stores. And whether that's whether that future is some kind of Dover Street market type up, up market retail uh, come, you know, gallery space or whether it's a, a more vibrant sort of cultural thing or whether it's a kind of Kensington market vintage setup. You know, when I was young, we used to go to Kensington market to get our kind of uh, psychobilly records or leather jackets or uh, dodgy uh, sailor tattoos or whatever it was. Um, you know, that kind of space is pretty much lacking in the centre of London now. Um, and it's been pushed out even from the margins of Camden or wherever it was, because it's all been all these places now are just lunch stalls, you know. But I know we're going to come on to planning later, but it's all part of planning. There is no imagination in what Oxford Street could be. I mean, is anyone really happy with what Oxford Street is now? I mean, I'm, I'm not sure they are. Maybe, you know, there's a certain amount of revenue and a certain amount of business rates coming out of it but it's not a it's not a success by any kind of uh, other measure apart from pure uh, you know rental income I, I wouldn't think in turnover I mean it's not a success culturally it's not a success aesthetically architecturally in terms of planning in terms of enjoyment so uh, you know I think we just it's time for a new model wealth inequality is of course a huge issue in London and never was that more evident than in March when Ella Jessel joined the London to discuss the story of a Hackney resident whose housing estate was being knocked down around her as she tried to home educate her four children due to the school closures under Covid lockdowns. Hackney Council started demolishing Marion Court in February while a single mother living within the estate was homeschooling her four children during lockdown. Residents have described severe noise and disruption and claim the family's water and broadband have regularly been cut off. Placed there temporarily as the estate had already been earmarked for demolition, Hackney Council committed to finding permanent social housing in the borough for the families remaining on the estate. But the resident says she has still not been offered a suitable alternative. Also in the news this week, just to to draw into contrast was the unveiling of the new sky pool a new private and completely transparent swimming pool connecting the roofs of two skyscrapers in nine elms what can we learn about the uk um, and london by laying these two stories so the family in hackney and the new pool in nine elms next to each other it's clearly an objectionable situation for the level of poverty that still exists in London to be juxtaposed relatively closely with really conspicuous displays of wealth. For people to be uh, glorying in these kind of very high energy, unnecessary architectural ornaments, uh, I find at least as problematic as the age-old V sign to the poor represented by conspicuous consumption in architecture. That comes on to the next point about this is something that we've seen time and time again. Um, and it's not just councils failing the most vulnerable residents. So only this morning a uh, on only this morning on Twitter, a letter was circulating from property management company HML to residents in Croydon who had been without water for days that at eleven PM at night they had to go and buy their own bottled water. Um, 
how are we at the stage where in one of the most affluent cities in the world there are still people uh, not having their most basic needs met? I think the tendency of the powerful to mistreat the less powerful is once again a very very long-standing one uh, in this specific kind of question of um, property management for uh, the less least affluent uh, there are questions of possibly disorganization excessive deregulation lack of investment there these tend to be things that come up again and again when you look into the details of these catastrophic cases of which obviously the appalling disaster was Grenfell Tower but this same pattern of neglect and uh, shortcut and uh, excessive deregulation aff- afflicts lots and lots of aspects of the um, the way in which we look after or fail to look after the, the most vulnerable in our society. A recurring theme on the show has of course been the intersection of race and equity. In April, the architect Iwa Effiam joined the Lundown to discuss a new podcast series exploring the relationship between historic architecture in the City of London and the transatlantic slave trade. For you, why do you think this is important to consider when it comes to architecture within this conversation? I think people forget architecture's association with power. It's a discipline that only really exists because of patronage. And these patrons in the past are people that have commanded a lot of power. And there was a sizable kind of period of the last millennium where this power was amassed by the exploitation of other. And these others were normally in places, as you say, that are far away. And the people that inhabited these lands were, I mean, to say that they were mistreated is an understatement. But the exploitation often results in exploits, which are manifested in bricks and mortar in uh, our cities, the cities in the Western world. And uh, these are constant reminders of this mistreatment to some. And, and But for most people, it's something that they're happy to kind of live with and, and um, kind of engage with without really kind of understanding the implications of that architecture. Um, I mean, one of the discussions that that's in the podcast, in a way that it sort of builds on on some of the uh, the Black Lives Matter protests that we saw last summer following the death of George Floyd, and that is to do with the difference between how we address buildings that were built off the back of the slave trade, like for example the Royal Exchange, but then also statues memorialising slave traders. So, for example, we saw a lot of quite frankly, explosive focus on on statues, right? And really powerful images and really kind of transformational moments potentially, but not so much on uh, buildings uh, themselves. Um, Obviously, you can't pick up a building and chuck it in the river. Um, I wouldn't want to see that. Why is there this difference? I think the difference between the statues and the buildings is that the statues commemorate these deplorable, deplorable people. These people that have amassed a bunch of wealth off the back of um, the kind of pillaging and the murdering and the rape of, of other places, right? And these buildings though they kind of stand as exaltation to these individuals, they have an opportunity, a chance to atone for their past transgressions. 
And I think that is the difference between them. One of the biggest topics in the planning world this year has been permitted development, which has radically expanded under the current government. In March, the AJ's Ella Jessel joined the London to discuss permitted development and what it meant for London and Londoners as it became the subject of a parliamentary inquiry. It's all to do with a parliamentary inquiry to examine the government's controversial rollout of permitted development rights. Heralded by the government as a way to introduce greater flexibility, to boost housing delivery and to kickstart the construction sector, permitted development rights allow developers to bypass planning permission in certain situations. The inquiry follows a widespread controversy over the practice, which has often resulted in substandard small homes, described by some campaign groups as, quote, slums of the future. And even according to a government commissioned report, a threat to the health, well-being and quality of life. Ella, what's this all about? Why are permitted development rights proving to be such a controversial topic? Do we all gain from them or is it just property developers looking to save money and drive down standards? I think it's mainly the property developers that that gain from permit development rights. Um, It's a planning loophole where you can bypass planning, full planning route in order to convert buildings into residential housing Um, and it's it's been sort of used by the government on numerous occasions as a kind of as part of their deregulation drive and it gets announced every sort of six months at the moment it seems as a new expansion of of PDR it's not just developers that that gain from it although they definitely do I guess the government also gains because it allow it allows them to you know, add numbers to their housing targets. I think it's about 13,000 a year um, homes are built through permitted development right, except they don't actually have to build them, obviously, because it's being, they're being converted from other, from other types of buildings, like offices and now a wider range, you know, shops and, you know, cafes and God knows what else. Why they're so controversial, permitted development rights, is precisely because they don't use the planning system, meaning their quality of the homes that... Um, are produced under permitted development rights are often very, uh, you know, very questionable. And there's huge issues around size of the flats, uh, around daylight, around location of the flats. So you've got these awful situations with blocks, office blocks in the middle of nowhere that are being converted into these tiny sort of rabbit hutch homes. Um, I think the most famous one is um, was in Harlow, Terminus House. Um, yeah, it's just shocking, really, that this is allowed in in uh, today. I still can't really get my head around it. And the government, on the one hand, does this with permit development rights, and on the other hand, says it wants beautiful, you know, it wants beautiful homes, and it's completely sort of schizophrenic, I think. But it's just strange because there's been so many warnings about about the kind of homes that permitted development rights are creating, um, including from bodies, you know, the RBA, the TCPA, the Town and Country Planning Association, the Local Government Association the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors, the list goes on, you know, all these people saying this is a really bad idea. And the government commissioned its own report, which was authored by an academic from UCL, which also concluded that homes built under PDR were worse. Um, And yet, you know, two days later, it announces yet another expansion of development rights. Uh, It's just, it's kind of bonkers, to be honest. Obviously, we haven't got time to cover absolutely everything that the Lundown has covered in the last 25 episodes, but hopefully that was an interesting smorgasbord, a selection of the kind of issues that we discuss and interrogate on this show and the kinds of people that we invite on to tease out the big issues with us. 
If you're new to the show, please hit the subscribe button, tell a friend, share the link. It really helps us to reach a larger audience. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've covered, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all of these issues and many more too. The editorial team includes Merlin Fulcher, Zoe Cave and Poppy Waring. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. You can tweet at the show using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N, or at Open City London. The Lundown is created by Open City, a charity dedicated to making London more open, accessible and equitable. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.